trust in good intentions, trust that people are doing their best, trust that people are good at what they do. Trust is the basis of, of all things, and especially in our context of remote, async, fully distributed. Hey there, this is Bev. I'm the host of People at Work Today. People at Work is brought to you by Jostle, the creator of an employee intranet that's helping people be more connected to what matters to them at work. And while we're building our intranet, we're also having conversations with people around the world who are really exploring and understanding what it takes to help people have a great experience at work. So today, I'm really delighted to welcome our guest, Gonzalo Silva, who is the CTO at Doist. Gonzalo is obsessed with building the future he wants to work in, where location is irrelevant to being part of a highly productive team. And that's why he joined Doist almost a decade ago, and it's why he remains there today as CTO, building tools like Todoist and Twist that help almost 20 million people combined worldwide be more productive and live a fulfilling life. So welcome, Gonzalo. I'm really excited to have our conversation today because it's just so relevant to the current times that we're in. And I'm um, just really looking forward to hearing more from you today. Hi there. Happy to be here. Fabulous. So before we jump into really looking at uh, what's going on at Doist and some of the things mm -hmm. that you've been up to there, uh, perhaps mm -hmm. you can give us just a short snapshot of your journey, because um, as I was reading about you and your background, you've got quite an interesting um, journey to where you are today. So perhaps you could share that with our audience in just a couple of minutes. Yes. Um, so um, I've had a long career in software development um, and, uh, well, I've been at Doist now for uh, over eight years, close to nine. Um, so I was actually, uh, I joined originally as a freelancer because the, the, the story of the company is quite interesting because at the beginning, the founder was trying to build like a company out of freelancing gigs. So if you needed design, he would hire a freelance designer. If you needed development, he would hire a freelance developer. And I was that freelance developer building the Android app uh, close to nine years ago. Uh, eventually he realized that, you know, to build and scale a company, he would need actual employees. Uh, so we kind of like did a, a best off of the people he had worked with. And that's how I joined the company. I had an amazing time working with him on a freelance basis. And then uh, I joined. So I think it's quite safe to say that Doist has been remote from day one because, you know, when you work with freelancers, usually you don't care about location as much as you do with employees. Um, and we've been figuring things out ever since. So I started as a developer as the, the team grew. I was in the Android team. The Android team grew. It needed a team lead. I, I assumed that role. Uh, then later on in the journey of the company, uh, we, we had a lot of engineers, a lot of engineering teams, and we were missing a bit of the glue between the teams and like what our engineering culture was as a whole. Um, and so I also assumed that role as CTO. Uh, and this is where we're today. We're still figuring things out. We have a lot of, I think, um, I wouldn't say unpopular, but I would say an uncommon ideas. First remote, we've been remote for 13 years now, although I've only been at, in the company for eight. Uh, a few years ago, we embraced asynchronous communication, which is uh, something else that's not super common uh, nowadays. And we think it's a key to success. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that's it. To, nowadays, we're about 80 people in the company. Uh, and our engineering team is about 40 people all across the world, all of the continents, over 40 countries, actually. So it's a very diverse uh, team. Yeah, it certainly sounds like that. And, uh, and starting off with being a remote 
company that is built from a group of freelancers creates quite an interesting mm -hmm. cultural dynamic, right? Because you're necessarily creating a, a team out of very autonomous people and um, almost just having this entrepreneurial spirit like yes. baked into the culture right from the very beginning. So how have you seen that change or unfold over the years that you've been there? I know that you said the, the founders decided to go from having freelancers to actually having employees, but mm -hmm. what actually changed in the culture as you made that transition from being a group of freelancers to being people who are now under um, one umbrella as employees of a company? Yeah. Um, actually, I think we've embraced these aspects. So for example, we only have five core values. We want to know them by heart at all times. And one of, one of them is independence. Uh, so um, I also think from that batch of freelancers that I was a part of that eventually joined the company, the way we worked Sure, it was super autonomous, super independent, but it was also very invested. So I was very in invested in the success of my work. This was one of the reasons our mm -hmm. partnership went so well. And it led to, you know, me getting an offer and actually thinking, yeah, this is a great idea uh, to join and do this on a full time basis. Um, we have fostered this culture ever since. So uh, this, 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 you know, translates into the way we do management. We don't micromanage. We don't even try. We're against this type of management. Uh, we work very much centered on ownership. So for example, we want people to pick projects they are passionate about to work on them. So we try to have, you know, uh, enough projects for the various teams to mix and match, uh, but make sure that the, the process of choosing what to work on for people is as democratic as possible so that they can say, I really care about this. I don't care as much about that. And then somebody else takes that other thing. Um, and we really think this, this lets us achieve the best results. Um, and even to the process that we use day to day, there is a big component of, of this autonomy and independence. For example, we don't do daily check-ins like probably most other teams. We have a weekly something we call weekly snippets where we just make a list of things we worked on last week things we plan to work on this week uh, things we learned and things that are, might be blocking us uh, and that's it that's the only kind of like formal uh, uh, check-in we do once per week uh, so there's not even a fixed time this is async by the way this is a thread it's not a meeting or anything people hmm. post in the morning afternoon evening whenever works for them that's absolutely fine and we actually don't use this as a traditional check-in we use this just as a kind of like a log so that, you know, if you're curious what's happening around you in the company, so, you know, we don't want to be isolated as, uh, that much. You can look around, see what's happening with your teammates, people from other teams, other teams, what, what they're doing, what they're focusing on, what they're blocked by. So, you know, just foster this culture of transparency, but without being overwhelming with things like daily check-ins and very granular goals. We try to avoid that as much as we can. It certainly sounds like you've been able to retain what the essence was of, you know, the, the spirit of working together from the very beginning and adapt that into a more of a scaled situation with the team growing and with the complexity of your projects increasing as well. Mm -hmm. um, and for the most part, it sounds like you've really been able to embrace and adapt that, but I'm sure there must have been some things along the way that mm -hmm. you had to choose to abandon or were really quite difficult to scale. And maybe you could just give us an example of one or two of those things that our audience might be able to learn from. Mm -hmm. So something that we did uh, change along the way was like the, the process that we use for decision making had to change because when we were smaller, when there were just a few people, we didn't really 
do things that you know in a very structured way we would have conversations we would get excited about something we would do it that's it um as we grew we had to we had some issues for example consensus starting being an issue when we had 20 people in a conversation it was not clear who the decision making was sometimes we would spend a lot of time discussing something, not actually arrive at any uh, conclusion, useful conclusion, uh, and struggle to move forward with it. So we had to adjust and be more explicit about, okay, so who's the decision maker in this? So everybody can still participate, but it's clear who needs to make a decision eventually. Something else we struggled with was, um, except for that very first batch that you mentioned was very you know, entrepreneur-like, um, People coming in, like we really believe people enjoy the autonomy they have at Doist, but sometimes the beginning is a bit of a shock because coming in and like not having a manager tell them what to do or what the options are and, and, and just like just having this expectation of, you know, take initiative, uh, you know, ask for forgiveness, not permission. We take this very literally is quite shocking for people usually. So there is also an education phase where we need not only to tell, but to show that this is really the culture we have and how we want to uphold it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those two come to mind. I mean, fighting consensus as we grow bigger, which is basically making it much clearer who the decision maker on things is. Uh, we're a bunch of passionate people. So as I'm sure you can imagine, if there are 20 people, there are 20 opinions and sometimes it's hard to converge. Um, and also, yeah, just, you know, showing people that the culture is real. Sometimes it's, it's, it's quite shocking. And we've had a couple of instances where it didn't work. So mm -hmm. uh, I still think we can do better than what we did, although it's unclear how we could improve that. But we've had a couple of instances with people where we tried, uh, the person tried, everybody was trying really hard, but we couldn't make it work. Well, like all of this autonomy and independence didn't work for them in the long term. They felt isolated. Uh, they didn't feel comfortable taking all of this initiative mm -hmm. and all of this strong expectation on them to work, you know, uh, act like your, the company is yours. It's something we, we, we do very much. And this did make uh, a couple of people uncomfortable and we were not able to reverse this and to grow out of this. And that was a long time ago. So maybe we're doing things better nowadays, uh, but still it's something that I think about because it's not a, it's not a, you know, a fairy tale. There have been instances where we just couldn't make it work for people. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that what you're building is, is probably not the right fit for every person. Right. And that's okay. As long as you can establish that early on. Um, mm -hmm. so I'm curious related to that, what does your interview process look like? Are you preparing people during the interview process for what it's like to be part of your team? And if so, how are you doing that? I mean, I think I, we are super proud of the, of our landing pages. So if you go and apply to a job at Doist, you're going to find a lot of information about how we work, how our culture looks like, what kind of perks do we have, uh, what do we value, what do we don't value, and all of that kind of information. Um, then in the, you know, the, the way we hire people, we have three interviews, a test project. Uh, the test project is asynchronous, by the way, so you're already exposed to the type of uh, work that we do. Mm -hmm. um, and in all of the interviews we do, there is a, a very long section at the end where we reverse roles, you know, ask me questions. You're now, you're the interviewer now. We all do this. And since people get a wide range of roles in the interviews, they might, if for a developer, they might get a developer colleague, uh, their team lead and me, for example, they can get a wide range of input as well about how the company works and how things work around here. And usually, 
I mean, I get a lot of questions all the time and that makes me very happy. Um, and then when we do hire people, we have something we call the onboarding period, which lasts roughly three months, sometimes a bit longer, where people have a mentor. And this is a person who's constantly available and, and kind of like even working alongside them to show them the culture. This is a very cultural thing and support them through this transition. Uh, and we have a very specific uh, task list, actually, of things that we want the person to do uh, from simple things like introducing themselves to propose a change in our products uh, later on. So we try to script these first few months uh, in small ways, but small ways that bring the person closer to the team, that expose the person to our culture, and also lets them find their own place, uh, you know, in the group. Awesome. And I, I'm very fascinated about onboarding processes, and, and we're actually at, at Jostle, we're just in the process at the moment of mm -hmm. understanding our own uh, experience and where some of the the flaws are and some of the positive things are that we provide to people. And we're, we're quite similar to you in terms of expecting people to be self-motivated and be in control of their own growth at our company. So mm -hmm. there are some similarities to what I'm hearing from you, but we definitely don't take it to the extreme that you do. And um, mm -hmm. I, I just, I'm, I'm so appreciative of you being so open about this. And I know that our, our listeners will get, will gain a lot from hearing this as well, because Obviously, many of us have been forced into remote work over the last six months, including Jostle, where I work. We're a tech company, but we were based in Vancouver and we had mm -hmm. flexibility with our hours, but we were predominantly an in-office organization. And so like many others in uh, early March, mm -hmm. we suddenly were uh, moved into working from our homes and yeah. uh, we, we've been there ever since. So, and I know we're not alone, obviously. So um, I think there's a lot that folks listening today will be able to take away from your experiences because mm -hmm. you've been in the fortunate position where you've been remote since day one, pretty much. Yes. Right. Yes. And you've had to navigate and find your way through what I would imagine is um you know, not very many companies 10 years ago would have been fully remote, right? So you've mm -hmm. really forged a path forward. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm sure for you, it's been business as usual from a working point of view. However, what I'd love to understand is how you've been coping with and perhaps leaning on your culture to help your people cope and manage with carrying on with work against the background of a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so yep. perhaps we could spend a few minutes just understanding what you think your existing culture provided as a strength to you, and then mm -hmm. maybe some things you've had to adapt to help your people cope through this time. Yeah, I mean, we definitely had a head start, uh, you know, in, in terms of strategy, tactics, like we could execute in this environment very well, because it's not very dissimilar to the one we had before. Not only were we fully remote, we were fully async. So mm. there were no work hours, for example. Our expectation is that we all work around 40 hours a week. That's it. If you want to do that in three days or across six days or at night, we, nobody cares. That's it. Um, so, and that was, that's also helpful, I think, in, in many ways, uh, uh, in terms of setting expectations. And actually, in this case, not having any, like you're in control. You were in control before, you're in control now. Um, having said this, the pandemic hit us like, I think, every other team. Maybe not, in, again, in the tactical aspect, because we were, you know, we knew, we knew how to do this. Mm -hmm. But people were still stressed and overwhelmed. Uh, and, you know, even if you're 
still at home safe. Uh, you know, you turn on the news and you see all of these, you know, thousands of cases, uh, some people dying, uh, countries struggling, economies falling. Um, it's really, it's not remote work, it's remote work during a pandemic, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so something we, we did early on was making this very clear internally. So we, we always we're very ambitious and we, we challenge each other a lot, but we, we're also supportive and we do this very explicitly. Actually, in the beginning of March, so this is at early days of the pandemic, something we did was we, we posted uh, to the whole company saying, okay, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how this whole thing is going to evolve, but we want you to know that you are not pressured into doing the commitments you had until now. So if you need time off, if you need, you know, if you have your kids at home because schools are closing, if any of these things are happening, your job is not at risk. Please take care of yourself, take care of your family. That should be your priority. And then we took it a step further and make it more, made it more um, explicit because, you know, just speaking can, might not be super helpful, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is a bit like unlimited time off. I mean, some companies pull this off, but the majority people actually take less vacations than when yeah. you have a fixed amount. Uh, so we took the cycles we had, we, we work in monthly cycles and we stretched the two following to a month and a half. So there was about 50% more time to do the work at hand. Uh, and that, that lasted three months. So there was a big buffer there where, you know, you could look ahead and see there was more leeway into the work you were going to do, not for a week, not for two, not for a month, but for three months. Um, and then, of course, we handled other, some cases individually. Some of our folks with children really had a rough time uh, staying at home. The young children can be very, very exhausting and uh, demanding. I guess mostly you can't even get out and go to a park. So um, we really built on top of this understanding and on top of the trust uh, right, so a lot of the things that we talked about so far indirectly uh, boil down to trust. We trust people to work 40 hours a week. We don't care when. That's trust, right? Like we don't micromanage people. Uh, we let them self-manage. That's trust. Um, we people pick what to work on. They are the leader in their own workload, right? The only thing we care about are commitments. So people commit to things, and then yes, mm-hmm. we want people to uphold the commitments, but we each of us individually make our own commitments. So that's something that's important. Uh, but again, it's about trust because we're not micromanaging any of this. And so we did it again. Uh, we stretched everything we could uh, and we trusted people to, you know, if they needed time off to take it. And, and this is important too. Uh, if they felt uh, good, if they had energy to work just like they regularly would. So, and this again worked fairly well. Nobody was controlling anybody uh, and I mean, sure, we moved slower during that time, but who didn't? Everybody did. Even the companies trying to control their employees. And, you know, there are some stories out there of people uh, wanting to, you know, wanting their employees to go back to factories. Tesla did this, and it's very hideous, in my opinion. Um, I'm sure they moved slower anyway. Uh, and in, the, in, in, in amidst all of this, I think we really respected our people. We respected the team and their obligations as citizens uh, across the pandemic. And this really helped. Um, support all of the employees and their families through the toughest times, which was when we were figuring things out, um, mostly. So, so let me ask you a question about the role that leaders played during this time. And it, it sounds like you've got a very um, balanced and empathetic and, and kind uh, leadership attitude, uh, you know, just obviously being exposed to you, I can see that with you. But what about some of the other people who are acting in leadership roles in the company? 
how much emphasis do you place on them to be setting the tone and to be giving other people permission, frankly, to take the time they need to not have the answers to, you know, not have to show up and pretend that you're doing well when you're not. Um, so tell me a little bit about your leadership culture and, and what that looks like currently and, and has it changed since the pandemic? Mm. I don't think our leadership culture changes anything with the pandemic. Uh, something we try to do is like, we have these ethos that I mentioned before, the core values, the five core values, right? So they, I mentioned independence, it's one of them. Then we have mastery, uh, ambition and balance. Uh, we have uh, impact and communication. And we try to like embody all of these things into the things that we do. And leadership is probably like, also takes this into their day-to-day -day work. Um, but the concept that we talked uh, before around uh, trust is really, really uh, important to us. So even within the leadership, we trust ourselves to make, uh, you know, uh, to make decisions, to, to, to choose, choose courses of action that make sense and that put people first, basically. Um, I'm not sure if that answers the question you were going for, but uh, that also applies to us. So the founder trusts me to work with engineering in a way where like, I don't actually report a lot of stuff to him. We talk more about culture and overall direction than whatever is happening on the field. And I do the same with my, you know, with the engineering managers we have. And this happens all throughout the company. So there is a lot of uh, trust to do things. This happened before, it also happened during the pandemic basically, although, there was a crisis in the beginning and this initial communication of, okay, let's take a step back, you know, stretch the timelines and all of that, that, that came very much from, you know, the, the CXO team that was very quickly, uh, we didn't want to wait too much to figure things out because, you know, everything was falling apart around us, schools were closing and uh, we felt like, you know, any delay after we decided to stretch things out and give people more breathing room would just be harmful, wouldn't be helping, so yeah. Well, it certainly sounds like you are being very true to putting people first, which I'm, I'm hearing as you're talking it, that's what's ringing out for me is that mm -hmm. you're a very uh, individual centric culture. And even as you come together to work as teams and you, you're obviously putting together effort into delivering products, mm -hmm. there is a very individual um, centric nature to your culture. And I think it's, it's admirable that you're able to bring all of those individuals together who are basically in charge of their own destiny mm -hmm. to come together and, and be as one underneath the five values that, that you shared. So I think there are a lot of people out there who are new to being remote or perhaps they're now a mix of being remote and in office mm -hmm. who have that exact question around, well, how do I keep building my culture where before I was able to do it with people in person yes. and now I don't know how to do it. So do you have any tips for those leaders who are struggling with this question right now around how do we actually keep our culture alive in this new remote way that we're working currently? Yes, um, definitely. I actually think um, we have better tools as remote companies to build culture than we did in office because they scale better. Uh, and so the first thing I want to mention is documentation. Um, this is something remote companies have to do, but I, you know, after having done this, I can't see myself not doing this in the future, even if I work in an office again. So we document a lot of things, even like the behavior we want to see, the core values that we discussed before, they are documented. There's a, you know, a summary of each one. There's examples. 
Um, so we make it very clear how the culture should look like. And we make it very open for people to challenge this. And this happens all the time, actually. For example, we're kind of like improving our career path at the moment. We're trying to use our core values to decide like what are the skills that people should work on. And we get a lot of pushback. Like, you know, I don't agree with this. I don't think this is important in my role. Uh, okay, let's discuss this. But the reason we can do this, it's because we're documenting everything. We're leaving it out in the open and we're using it actually. So the number one tip I would give people is write it down. Like write everything down. Uh, it's more important to write it down than to make it beautiful. So hopefully we can avoid some writer's block there. But the, it's important to write everything down, starting with what's most important, like, you know, where your core values, what your culture should be or what do you want it to be. Write it down, uh, build room for people to challenge it. Uh, and trust me, the people who challenge it will be the people who embody it more than anything else because they read it, they agreed and disagreed, they made you know, they helped build a new version. Hopefully you're open to changes. And it's, it's a really great way to, to, to not only to build culture, but to maintain culture. Because again, you hire somebody new. In a regular company, they will come into the office and will, they will often have to absorb your culture by observation, by osmosis, by being with everybody else. When we, will, when we onboard somebody new, we give them a lot of documentation, like here's how things work around here. And this, is, this documentation has been improving for many years by many people. So it's, it's in a very polished state. Um, so documentation, number one, making room for people to ask questions and challenge things is number two. And number three is radical candor. Like, um, I know this is a bit of a loaded term, but what I mean by this is when you're defining things like culture and color values, if, you're, if you have an idea, but you're holding back as you write about it, you're not going to uh, convey the idea you want to other people. So let's say there is a trait that's super important to you, like independence. Like I never, ever, ever want to tell you what to do. I want you to always figure it out by yourself. Write this down. Don't write independence as a light term. Don't give light examples. Like if you have an extreme view on something, then you know, write it down as an extreme view on something and give extreme examples. Uh, because this is much more honest and this will set your people up for success a lot better than the alternative. Uh, and again, if you have an environment where people can challenge this, maybe they will change your point of view or they will give you tools to document your idea better where it's more understandable by everybody else. So those would be the three key things for me uh, when it comes to building culture in a remote environment, documenting, making that a team effort, basically meaning open to challenging and questions. And uh, I just talked about the third one and I lost it. Uh, Radical oh, candor. Yes, yes. Being honest about what you're writing, like be honest with yourself and be honest with your team. Yeah, thank you. Those are, are three very useful things to think about. Um, is there a danger in never actually getting to the finish line of having something that everyone can rally around though? Like what have you found as you've evolved this? I mean, you've obviously, you're quite mature as a company in having this ability to challenge each other and present ideas and distill them down and then move forward. But for a company that's new to this, they might just be spinning their wheels constantly and never actually getting to something that people can get behind. Yes. So how do you prevent that from happening? Make your decision maker clear. So somebody will be responsible for culture. It doesn't need to be a person. Sometimes it can be a small team. You want to have a wider discussion, but you want to make it clear 
who's making the decisions. Now, I don't mean this in a in a kind of like I'm not I'm not saying pick a few people to decide everything. I'm saying pick a pick a few people to make sure the discussion is evolving towards a resolution, to make sure that all opinions are heard, but to also make sure that in the end there is some kind of outcome out of it, right? When you're discussing topics like culture, you're going to have many different perspectives. They will all compete. There will not be an objectively better choice. So um, again, it's important to hear everybody because even if you don't change uh, the culture itself, you might change the way you present it. You might change the way the examples you use. But of course, there will be disagreements and it's important to have somebody who ultimately will make a decision and will move forward. Uh, and then, I mean, it's hard to say, but at some point, people will need to disagree and commit around something. Um, but hopefully the process is good enough, transparent enough, open enough uh, for people to feel heard and to feel like they contributed. So it's also important for leadership to not make up their minds very early and just roll with something and pretend to be open. I see this happen all the time when people have already made up their minds and they're not really open to change. This is a mistake. Honestly, if you're not open to change, just say you're not open to change and that's it. It's, it's, it's better than pretending we are. Um, but yeah, around culture, I, I really think uh, it's unavoidable to have many different perspectives and the best thing we can do is define, okay, so in the end, after all is said and done, after we find as much common ground as we can, who will make the decision and let us move forward? That's actually something we struggled with. You talked about how sometimes leaders have already made up their mind about what the set of values is going to be or what the purpose and mission is going to be of the company. And they really only put it out to people as a way to check a box that they've actually had community consultation around the idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as you said, and I agree with that completely, that is 100% the worst thing you could possibly do. So mm -hmm. if you're not looking for feedback, just be open about it and say you're not looking for feedback. Yes. Um, but then be prepared for what impact that is going to have on your culture yes. and people's yes. feeling of being um, engaged and involved and wanting to be part of what you're building. So yes. it's absolutely fine to not ask for comments or input, but then mm -hmm. accept that there's a cost for that decision, right? Yes, yes. So... That's going to be something very hard, I think, for a lot of people to work through in the coming months around how they're reframing their culture, changing some of the ways of working, like some of the things you mentioned around decision making that you had to grapple mm -hmm. with. Um, so what are you at Doist facing right now in terms of what's your biggest culture challenge? You're many years ahead of, of most of us, but you've still got challenges for building your culture, right? So what are mm -hmm. you facing right now that's maybe not pandemic oriented? Hmm. Um, well, th there's quite a few things. We are hopefully ambitious about our culture too and who we want to be. Um, I think the some, something we are struggling a bit with um, is consistency. And so because we're about 80 people, uh, because we're spread across the globe, because we work in a very asynchronous way, um, I think we're starting to see that, you know, we don't have that osmosis component. Uh, so our, we can be inconsistent between it ourselves and this generates all kinds of friction and broken expectations. Uh, for example, I was just talking to you about documentation and documenting everything. This is something we embraced a year and a half ago. 
So for a team that's been for around for 13 years, that's quite new. And it was something we realized we need to write everything down. And we have seen a massive change since we started doing that. But we still nowadays uh, feel very inconsistent uh, in some instances. So it's not very extreme. It's not very common, but we notice this. Sometimes our culture uh, is not there. Uh, and I mean this in all layers of the company. Like, I, uh, for example, I see this, sometimes I see this rift between myself and the CEO or the other C-level executives. We see this between the various uh, leadership teams. We sometimes see this between teams, like two engineering teams. They, for the support team, for example, they do the same thing, right? But they behave a little bit differently. And this is hard to manage for the support team. So finding that common ground where we act more like a team is has always been challenging. It's a lot better now, but continues to be challenging. And honestly, I'm bringing this up because I feel that as we scale, this will probably be one of our biggest permanent challenges uh, because we might solve this for 80, 100 people. But if we go to 200, will this last or will we need mm -hmm. another approach to this? Mm -hmm. uh, that, that, I mean, that's a challenge we haven't had yet, but we have been thinking about it. Yeah. Something that, so, something that I wanted to mention is um, because we're all basically, we're talking about culture, basically, right? And and something that I don't think uh, people realize sometimes, leaders realize, and we, we I am often blind to this, I need to take a step back and reflect to realize this, is that culture is more important than tactics. So in the long run, if you think long-term enough, you should, if you need to sacrifice something, maybe the short-term execution, your current tactic is a fine, like it's a fine trade-off for building a better culture. Uh, because the culture is what will last for the longest of times. The culture you're building or not building is what will carry on to the, you know, the new people you hire. It's what will carry on for the future years to come. Uh, whatever decisions you make now, they will definitely have an impact. They can, be, they can be super important, but they will be done now. And most of them will be forgotten in a month or in a year or in some time span. While culture is somewhat permanent, you're always building it. So I'm, this is something that I've been thinking about more, especially in the context of the pandemic, because there were a lot of tactical sacrifices to make sure we have the right culture. And I really think this was a wise decision and something that I think we need to you know, double down because even if it hits us in the short term, we will always be building a better team, a stronger team in the long term if we invest in culture. So yeah, I wanted to bring that up because we were also discussing before uh, coming up to the team with the... Um, you know, with your mind made and being upfront about it. Uh, and, and sure, I mean, please be honest whenever that happens, but we should avoid that because that's one of the things where we're picking tactics over culture as a leader. If, when I feel like I've made my mind on something, it's because I think it's the absolute right choice. And, 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 and my, even my team might not agree with me on this. In that instance, I, even if I'm right, I'm picking the tactic over the culture and this has costs, and this is something that I, as a leader, I want to avoid because in the long term, culture is usually the right choice. Yeah, I'm glad that you raised that because, I, you, know, you know, culture is something that's, that's happening whether you're attending to it or not, right? Yes. Like, yes. And you have a choice about whether you're going to be intentional or not about culture as a leader. Mm -hmm. And really, I, I do agree with you that if you have to choose, you should focus on culture, not tactics, because if you focus on culture, it's necessarily going to impact your tactic. But if you focus on tactic, it's also going to impact your culture, but in a very short term, um, probably negative way, 
necessarily, yeah. right? So uh, I, I do like how you put that and how you contrasted that. I think that's a very useful mechanism for people to use going forward when they're struggling with culture issues right now is double down on the culture and that will necessarily yes. sort out many of the other things that you're wrestling with. Not, it's yes. not easy, but if you invest in the culture, it's more likely going to lead to a positive outcome than doing it yeah. the other way around. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not easy. You said it's not easy. And yes, it's very hard because the thing about culture is you don't see the benefits immediately. It takes a lot of time, a lot of repetition, a lot of nurturing to see. And, and it's such a long-term thing that honestly, it's really hard to see any effects unless you, in many years from now, look back and see, wow, there's been a slow but steady change around mm, things. Mm -hmm. You know, We're doing better, but it was hard to see at the time. And this is hard because all of the tactical decisions usually have a reward, a very immediate reward, right? Like you implement a behavior you want to see, you maybe force it on your team and the next week it's being done. Even if people disagree with it, you have a reward, right? You make a decision, uh, that decision goes into effect, like you execute on something, there's an immediate reward. Like I did something today. Well, when you work on culture, it's, it's, it's hard. It's like, you know, I don't know if, if the listeners have plants, but it's like watering your plants. Like you don't see anything happening, but if you, you, you care for your plants for a very, very, very long time, eventually they're going to grow big and healthy, right? And you're, you're going to feel good about it, but it, it's not going to be any of those individual moments where, when you're caring for them, it's something that happens slowly and over time. Um, technical decisions are much more uh, you know, much more appealing to our brains who want rewards and as many rewards as we can get and as quickly as we can get. So it's a hard choice to make, but it's a very, you know, a very healthy one, especially if you're trying to build a team and a company for the long term, because in the long term, culture is all that matters. Yeah, and I think that's a perfect uh way for us to end our conversation around, um, you know, what we've been building up to here as you've been telling us the story of Duis and you've been talking about some of the, um, you know, giving us a bit of an inside look into some of the things you do. Um, mm -hmm. I've really been listening for the, the very individual personal uh, way that you approach your culture and your company and your team. And I think that, um, individuals need to be nurtured like those plants, right? As much as your culture needs to be nurtured. And I think mm -hmm. if, if we could say this a different way, yes, we need to be focusing on culture for the long term, but the way that we get that culture to flourish is by focusing on individual people. Yes. And um, another thing that you had said quite early on in the conversation was um, you have this thing that glues people together, which it really is your culture. So, Maybe what I'll ask you to end with is, can you give us one word that resembles the glue that you think keeps everyone together in your organization as a point of inspiration for others who might be listening? <laughs> one word. Okay. So that's, <laughs> that's the hardest question. <laughs> or two, uh, two or three words. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It can't be one. your values. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I like a challenge. Um, one word. Uh, Okay, I will go back to something we discussed today, which is uh, trust. I think trust is ultimately uh, very important for building this glue. You know, trust in good intentions, trust that people are doing their best, trust that people are good at what they do, trust that the people know something you don't, uh, trust people so that you hear them. Uh, like trust is the basis of, of, of all things and especially 
in our context of remote async, fully distributed, no, no, no schedules. Like we really need trust to do all of these things, including building the culture, right? Like if, especially if you do it collaboratively, you need to trust the people you are, you are working with and that are building this culture with you. So I guess one word would definitely be trust. Well, I think that's an excellent choice and it is something that people can really take away and think about and apply in every aspect of their work, right? And every aspect of their relationships with people. And it's something that's really accessible. We can all work on building trust. We can all reflect on our own behaviors, ask ourselves, did that build or take away trust? So yeah. I think that's an excellent uh, thought for us to to leave with. So thank you so much for being put on the spot and being challenged <laughs> and thank you for uh, your willingness to share and help others learn from you. And uh, you've just given us such a, a great window into your world and it's inspiring, but I know that a lot of hard work has gone into getting to where you are today. So congratulations on building something that many of us is, are still aspiring to. So uh, be well and uh, <laughs> keep up the good work. Thank you for having me. And for the record, I have no clue what I'm doing. So we're all figuring it out <laughs> as we go. And uh, no, I want to make it that clear because sometimes it can look to people and, and say, oh, they have this figured out. We don't. We're just learning as we go. We're improving things. We're always trying to improve things and we never look at something as done. So yeah, we're all newbies in, in many ways. And so it's okay to not know. That's, that's fine. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> just that... wanted to mention that because like, I don't want to sound like I know everything. It's, it's more of a, this is what we learned so far, which might change tomorrow and that's fine. So yeah. Well, I appreciate your humility. And that's another thing that leaders need to be thinking about is not needing to have the answers and not needing to have it solved yet. Right. And yes. that it really is going to be the workplace of the future that succeeds is where nobody really knows what the answer is and being okay with that. And yes. that requires a great deal of trust from everybody involved. Yeah, so I think true. you've summed it up so well today. And um, I look forward to staying in touch and learning more from you. And uh, if I can help you in any way, please let me know. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of People at Work. It would mean a lot to us if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. The more reviews we get, the more people discover the podcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe to ensure that you don't miss an episode. You can do this wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can reach me at bev at jostle.me or find me on LinkedIn. Until next time, take care. Yeah.